Good morning. Hey, grab your Bible and turn to First Chronicles 29. First Chronicles 29. If you don't have a Bible, grab a red Bible right in front of you. Turn to page 231. 231. That'll get you at First Chronicles 29. First Chronicles chapter 29. Happy Father's Day to each one of you. Would you please stand with me as we open up in a word of prayer? Let's go before the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we again rise to pray to just uh, thank you, God, for answering so many of the prayers that we had in our hearts last week. Uh, Lord, we, we noted as a community that, that uh, when it rains, it pours. And last week and all throughout these number of days, Lord, uh, there has just been hardship after hardship and, and prayer request after prayer request. So many hospitalized and and uh, suffering and hurting others in labor, others dealing with newborn uh, children that have been um, having difficulty eating and the like. But God, we recognize here today that you have answered so many of those prayers. We're grateful that Elsie's here. We're grateful, God, that you answered our prayer for Jeannie and a successful surgery. But God, she's still in pain. You know that. We ask, we're asking you now, God, to bring relief right now and healing to her back. And give her the ability to go home soon. And we're grateful, God, for Josh and Cassie, for the beautiful baby boy that was born last Sunday, even as we called out to you, Lord. We thank you for a healthy baby. We were praying for that end, Lord. And we just pray now that you would just uh, wrap your arms around that young family and shower them with your love. Now for the rest of us here, God, would you um, open our eyes, open our hearts? We're here because we want to learn from you, Lord. We're here to open up your word and, and ask you in earnest, what would you have me do, Lord? And today as we consider this uh, topic of, of uh, money, we ask God that you would truly give us moldable hearts. We thank you, God, for this day in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you're new today, uh, I want to assure you that uh, we don't always talk about money. <laughs> Some people have the impression that that's all churches talk about. I actually can't remember uh, the last time I did a series on money at all, um, but we've taken the last uh, couple Sundays, actually two weeks ago and today, to talk about the issue of money, but it's also within the con- a larger context of a sermon series that we're in called The Rest of Life Resurrected. The Rest of Life Resurrected. And what we mean by that is, what does it mean to live the Christian life, the rest of life, the the, the everyday parts of life? What does it mean to live those parts of life with resurrected eyes, seeing it differently, looking upon life differently when it comes to things like marriage, parenting, parenting? when it comes to things like, like leisure and entertainment, what does it mean to be a Christian when we engage in those things? When it comes to things like money and commerce, dealing with day-to-day spending, saving, giving, investing, what does it look like to be a Christian in that part of life? What does it mean to be a Christian at work, vocation? We've already covered that topic. We're going to go on to cover topics like what does it mean to be a Christian and uh, interact with the topic of rest, resting as the scripture speaks so much of rest and what that does for us as a person. There are many other topics that, uh, that we've been covering, um, but, but today, the part of everyday life, 
that we want to discuss is the issue of money. The issue of money. At the top of your outline, if you'd like to take notes, I encourage you to. Grab a pen right in front of you. Ben Witherington, from whom this series is inspired uh, and, and to whom I give so much credit, even for this message, Ben Witherington writes this in his book, Jesus and Money. He says, what determines how most Christians view money, lending, giving, one's economic lifestyle, etc., what determines those things is not the Bible, but rather cultural factors and influences. Do you agree with that? What determines how most Christians view money, lending, giving, one's economic lifestyle, how they engage in commerce, is not the Bible, but rather cultural factors and influences. Think about what, from whom you've learned about money. Think about that for just a minute. How have you learned to deal with money? Well, you've probably learned about it a little bit from your parents, either indirectly or directly. <laughs> either indirectly, you just kind of watch them as they interacted with money, spent it, saved it, gave it away. Or directly, maybe your mom or dad took you aside to teach you. Maybe you learned about money in high school. We all took uh, economics, right? Uh, maybe you learned about it in college. Maybe you learned about money from uh, a financial advisor that you have, whom you go to, or maybe a variety of advisors. Maybe you've learned about money from certain books, from successful business people. I'm here to ask you the very simple question, have you considered what the Bible says about money? Because it seems to me that... uh, there's someone who probably knows a little bit more than every man or woman on earth. And that is the God of the Bible. The one from whom it all comes. Two weeks ago, we looked at some of the old, fleshly, kind of deadly ways we look at money. And we get caught into two traps. Two traps. This is from two weeks ago. Number one on your outline, some of us love money. That, that can be one trap. We love it. And we dream about spending it or earning the status that comes with it. We love to shop. We love to spend. We love to buy. We love money. We love earning it as much as we can. We think that's our goal in life. We derive, we derive significance from earning money. We think that that's what makes us a real man, a real woman. We like the status that comes with it. We like the people that it allows us to hang out with or the, the pleasure, the entertainment, the, the vacations that it allows for. Now, some of you might be saying, well, that's not me. I don't maybe struggle in that area, Pastor. Well, maybe the second one's an area in which you struggle. Number two, some of us worry about money and fret about having enough of it. These can be folks both in the rich and the poor and in the middle class categories. People who are constantly anxious about money. Worried about having enough of it. Fretting over whether or not um, they'll be taken care of in the future. Or whether their family will be taken care of in the future. Some Christians, in an attempt to remedy their uh, love for or worry of money. They, uh, they've attempted, some Christians have, to make sweeping statements about 
how a Christian is to approach money. Maybe they've, they've, they've bought into the trap of the love of money or they've gone down the road of worrying about money and so in reaction to these, one, of, one of these two traps, they say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna find some, some piece of God's word and I'm gonna just make that my mantra. Some Christians approach the issue of money by, by taking a, one little sentence or, or statement in scripture and saying, that's it, I'm gonna do that. For instance, some Christians hear what Jesus told the rich young ruler and say that's what all Christians are supposed to do. Jesus told the rich young ruler in Luke 18, 22, sell all that you have and give to the poor. Sell all that you have and give to the poor. Some Christians, even some teachers of God's word, say that's, that's the way you ought to live. Still others who buy into that mantra, then, of course, come across another scripture. They come across Hebrews 13.2. And, and just as they've sold all they had and gave to the poor according to what they thought God wanted them to do, then they come across Hebrews 13.2, which says, show, excuse me, which says, do not neglect to show hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality. And they wonder that to themselves aloud, well, wait a minute, how can I show hospitality if I've sold all that I have? competing areas of scripture. Jesus to the rich young ruler, sell all you have and give to the poor. Hebrews 13.2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. You ask yourself, well, they can't both be right, can they? Or maybe, maybe, wait a minute, we shouldn't make such sweeping generalizations when it comes to understanding what the Bible says about money. Surely there is some kind of balance that can be forged the wholesale one mantra approach derived from one area of scripture should not be something that we as a community uh, cling to and say, this is it, and it's only this. No, there is a balanced approach. Better yet, there's a resurrected approach to money in the scripture. We can find a resurrected view of money, one that Jesus would draw our attention to, and that is our quest. As we begin that quest, there is perhaps no better place to begin to understand a resurrected view of money than to return to the one from whom it all comes. David, King David, in speaking about the glorious temple and the gifts that were to be brought to it, this is what he said to the Lord in a prayer of his heart in 1 Chronicles 29, verses 11 through 14. This is David's prayer. He says this, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Verse 13. Now therefore our God we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people, David asks, that we should be able to offer so willingly as this for all these things that they're bringing into the temple. All these things come from you. And of your own, we have given you. Of your own things, of your own resources, 
All these gifts, Lord, that we're bringing into the temple now that I'm praying to you about, all of these things are already yours. Of your own, we have given you. Only of your own can we give you. It's not mine, David says. It's not mine. None of it is. It's God's. And ironically enough, even though it's all God's, he shares it with you and with me. We're not the owner or even the one who is ultimately responsible for what we have. All that we have has been lent to us by God. My possessions, my material blessings, my money, my resources, all of it has been lent to me and to you by God. When I spend it, I'm spending God's money, not mine. When I invest it, I'm investing God's money, not mine. When I give it, I'm not giving my own money. I'm giving God's. I am but a steward. All that is in heaven and all that is in earth is the Lord's. Of your own, we have given you, says David. Let that settle in just a bit. Because some of you, you know, you, you, if you pull out your wallet right now and you, you look at the cash, you look at the cards, you pull out your checkbook and you check that balance, you, we often have a tendency to look at that and go, that's mine. I earned that. I did that. That's from my own hard sweat and toil. And I earned every penny of it. And yet David says, David, King David, the wealthiest on earth at that moment in all of Israel, says, none of it's mine. Not one dime is mine. It's all yours, Lord. And every time I give you a gift, I'm just giving you back what's already yours. Every paycheck you've earned, every home you've lived in, the cars that you drive, the education you've received, the vacations you've enjoyed, the money in your bank account, all of it is God's. It's from God. It's been given to you to steward on his behalf. And oh, how such a perspective on things, on things. Oh, how such a perspective on material things such as this can help and aid the believer in finding contentment in what he or she has. On your outline, number one, we're we're moving toward a resurrected view of money here. Number one, be content with what you have, knowing that all of it is from God. Number one, be content with what you have, knowing that all of it is from God. Paul says in Philippians 4, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I've learned how to be abased. I've learned how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the knowledge that it's all God's and none of it's from me, Anytime I think I've earned it, I've lost sight of the fact that it's a blessing from the Lord. When we have that perspective, it also helps us, as as David says in Psalm 23, that beautiful psalm. He opens it up. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. 
I shall not want. I shall not desire or covet or look upon any other thing but the Lord my God, my shepherd. When I know it all comes from Him, then, then when I am blessed materially in any way, shape, or form, whether it's just in a little or, or in a lot, I look up and I go, that's from where it came. The Lord's my shepherd. It's not this thing that I want. It's a blessing from Him. It's all His. And He's given it to you as a blessing. And so number two, this is, we're going through a really rapid fire and then we'll get to number three and slow down. Number two, reckon yourself not to own the things that you have, but to be God's steward of them. Reckon yourself not to own the things that you have, but to be God's steward of them. Paul says to Timothy, now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. You brought nothing into this world, you'll carry nothing out. Intellectually, we know that, right? Intellectually, we know that, that I'm not, I'm not going to carry any material thing with me into the kingdom of God. Those of you who have trusted Jesus as your Savior... You're going to heaven. You know where you're headed. You're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you. And when you look upon heaven, when you look upon the kingdom, you know that I'm not going to carry anything with me. I'm not going to carry suitcases full of money or material things with me. Intellectually, you know that. But how often do, does our heart's perspective and really our, our, our practice how often does that betray our intellectual knowledge? We do think we'll take it with us when we spend lavishly on ourselves. We do think we'll take it with us when we are complete consumers and those who covet over things like cars and shoes and the right clothes and the best entertainment, the fanciest toys, vacations. In practice, many of us do pretend like we're going to carry it with us. Witherington writes this in another comment, not on your outline. He says, we have muted, we have muted our consciences when it comes to moral responsibility for what we buy and when we buy it. And how much we pay for it. We've learned to spend freely without thinking about our obligations to those less fortunate than ourselves. We spend like crazy as a society. You know, we're, we're, we're in the first world. We live in America. We live in a very blessed nation. Uh, we are even the poorest among us. We are among the wealthiest in the world. Congratulations. You are among the wealthiest people in the world no matter what you have in your bank account right now. And yet, we don't even put a thought often to what to do with that money. 
Instead, we spend it like crazy on ourselves. We spend it like crazy on our children and grandchildren, supposing that spoiling them is somehow our duty. Some of us, though, instead we just save and save and save and put away and put away and put away, thinking that, that, that somehow that, that's our security. Some of us save 10, 20, 30 years for retirement, despite the fact that uh, retirement, by the way, is, is not to be found anywhere in this book. Retirement, nowhere in scripture, its underpinnings are a complete 21st century construct. Think about that for a minute. No one retired in all of human history until this day. That is to say, no one among uh, outside of the top 1%, we, we might add. No one retired. They worked until they were too old to work. Or in the cases of some, they worked until they had uh, enough to support themselves in the work of the ministry. On your outline, if the purpose of making money now is so that one can live in luxury and idleness later, that is not a Christian motivation. But the man or woman who learns that they, that they do not own what they have begins to think differently about such things. They begin to find peace and contentment, knowing that it's all from the Lord. They come to learn that true riches are found in contentment, that you will be rich when what you have is enough. I mentioned that two weeks ago, that the, 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 the settled man or woman, the man or woman of peace comes to learn and understand that they will be rich when they recognize that what they have is enough. And thus the content man or woman asks some better questions. They ask, how can I be a good steward of the things God has given me? They ask, how can I be a good steward of the wealth and the resources that God has given me? It's not me, it's all His. The money that God has entrusted to me. And then they come to learn the most important point of all. And this is on the back side of your outline. And we're going to spend the most on this. Because this is where Scripture spends the most on money, by the way. This is... If there's nothing else you take away from this message, it ought to be point three. When profit comes our way, give it back to him. When profit comes our way, give it back to him. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Profit, like a paycheck or really any kind of profit. He mentions there, honor the Lord with your possessions, with what you already have, not just your paycheck. And of course, with the first fruits of all your increase, which we often associate with maybe earning a paycheck, but it could also be an, an inheritance. It could be gifts given to you. It could be resources that another provides you. With all of your increase, honor the Lord. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 16, he, he says in verse 2, on the first day of the week, he's speaking to the church there, they're, they're taking up a collection for uh, poor uh, saints in Jerusalem. He says, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come few things I want to note about that. Number one, first day of the week. Proverbs mentions first fruits, meaning the first, the first that, that comes off the tree, so to speak, the best. First day of the week. 
21st century modern terms, Paul might say, when you first get your paycheck on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing it up as he may prosper. That's the second thing I want to point out. Laying it aside as you may prosper. In other words, Paul says, give in accordance with what you have. Give as you've been prospered. Lay it aside as you've been prospered. Every time you're prospered with some kind of profit, lay something aside the moment you get it, the first day of the week. And then finally, he says that there be no collections when I come. That's also significant. Because you see, when Paul, when Paul came and Paul preached, everybody uh, in the community went, oh, yeah, yeah, got to give. That's right, that's right. And they passed the plates. Paul says, that's not how I want you to give anymore. I want you to give proactively. I want you to give of your own volition before I ask you to give. I want you to give. I want it to be such a recurring pattern in you that every single time you get profit of any kind, anytime you get increase of any kind, whether it's a paycheck, inheritance, gifts, whatever it is, that your first inclination is to say this portion, I'm going to give to the work of the Lord. And I'm not going to wait till the annual sermon on money. But I'm going to proactively consider with my family what can we give to the work of the Lord with this paycheck, with this gift, with this inheritance. First day of the week, lay it aside. Don't wait till Paul comes and tells you. The Lord's the one telling you. Where should I give? Where should I give? Well, there's two places really in Scripture that God speaks of where to give. First, on your outline, give materially where you have benefited spiritually. Write that word down, spiritually. Give materially where you have benefited spiritually. Paul mentions this in Romans 15. In fact, I'm going to turn there. You can turn there if you like. Romans 15, verse 27. This is a wonderful portion of Scripture and a wonderful pattern to keep in mind as you consider how to give or where to give. Romans 15, verse 26 and then 27. He writes this. He said, and he's talking to the church at Rome and he's telling them about other churches that have done wonderful acts of, of, of generosity. And he says this about these other churches. He says, for it pleased those, verse 26, it pleased those from the churches in Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, then it's their duty, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Paul says, Romans, just like the Macedonians and the Cans before you, if you've benefited spiritually from someone or some place, if you've benefited spiritually, then it's your obligation to give materially to that individual or to that place. And therein we find, one of, in the New Testament, one of the, the primary uh, impetus for why we give to the church. Or why, you know, in, in the case of, of the Jews in the Old Testament, why they gave to their synagogue. We give to the church 
Because this is a place, not the only place, but a place where we've benefited spiritually. He speaks elsewhere of, of, of those who have taught spiritual things. How, how you're not to, he, he mentions the phrase, muzzle an ox as it treads the grain. Paul says, you give materially where you've benefited spiritually. Now, it's not just the church, because we've benefited spiritually in a number of different places. Some of you have benefited uh, from, from Christian camps. Others of you have benefited from missionaries who have ministered to you and who go out and minister in the name of, of Christ. So there's so many places in which you've benefited spiritually. And God says, through Paul in Romans, he says, you take your material increase and you bless those who have spiritually benefited you. Amen? That is an impetus to give to the church, to missions, to those who have ministered to you spiritually. I urge you to do it. Secondly, and a very and just as important, just as important where we should give our money, it is to this. Give to those in need, especially to the household of faith. Give to those in need, especially to the household of faith. This is derived from Galatians 6, verse 10. I've given you other verses as well. I'll start in verse 9. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul, Jesus, others with them says, give. Give to those who are poor, who are less fortunate, who are in need. And Paul mentions prioritizing that gift. He says, give especially to the house of faith. That doesn't mean not giving to non-believers. Not at all. Not at all. But it does mean with the first fruits, with, with those, the, the, the best portions of your resources and, and paychecks and gifts, he says, make sure you're taking care of your own community. Make sure those in this community have their basic necessities covered. And then beyond that, yes, take it out into the community and bless others with, with money and with gifts. Being prudent, being wise, of course. You know, I, I often get people saying, well, what about giving money, you know, to the homeless? Or, or I'm worried about how it might be spent. That's fine. Buy them a meal. Better. That's better. Take them out to lunch. Get them a, a gift card, a food card, which we often do uh, in our, our office, we hand out food cards, sometimes even gas cards, so that they can transport themselves around those who are needy and, and hurting. Give to those in need, especially to the house of faith. And by the way, if you look at these two items here, that's why in your bulletin when we list the, the donations to the church, we list general fund giving and we list benevolent giving. The general fund is meant to be the material blessings from the people to the church as a whole that, that, that provides this place where we can t- continue to benefit spiritually and that, that pays salaries and stipends for those who minister in a spiritual manner. That's the general fund. And the second fund we list on our bulletin is the benevolent fund, which meets criteria number two, giving to those in need, especially to the household of faith. That's why we have a benevolent fund. And I remind you that we... Uh, we take up a special offering for that fund on the first Sunday of every month. And you can give it at any time, just designate it benevolent, but especially on the first Sunday of the month, if you wish to give to the benevolent fund, I urge you to do so. There are always, always needs. 
Okay, we know where we should give. What about how we should give? How to have a resurrected view of giving. The first point is this. Give cheerfully. Give cheerfully. You've heard this before, but I'll mention it again. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Let me read that again. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Notice there that Paul is really, he's zeroing in on the emotion and the sentiment as you give. That's significant. Paul is zeroing in on how do you feel as you give it. Because it's not just the amount you see. You might just you know, write a big check and hand it over to someone and, and think you've done your duty. Paul says, no. There are emotional implications for how God sees your gift. He looks upon your heart. He looks at your emotions. He looks at your sentiment. And he's looking for something as you give. He's looking for cheerfulness, for joy, for peace. He's not looking for a begrudging heart. You know, the, our old flesh loves to trend toward other sentiments. The enemy loves to twist these emotions, twist them, twist them, twist them. And he wants us to experience other emotions as we give. He wants us to resent the gift or be bitter about it. Oh, you need money again. Ah, what else is new? Oh, there's the pastor asking for money again. The one Sunday I come to church and there they are again asking for money. Begrudgingly, resentfully, God says that's not how you give. How about manipulatively? I'll give to you, but you owe me later. And one day you better return the favor because I'm counting how much I've given. How about pridefully? Ah, you are so lucky. I am so generous. Where would you be without me? I'm pretty phenomenal. Or ostentatiously, look everyone. Look how much I've given. Do you see this big check I'm carrying? Look at my bank account. All such fleshly emotions are born, they're born from a misguided belief that your money is yours. (laughs) They are born from a misguided belief that your money is yours. I'm here to tell you it's not yours. Based on the authority of God's word. Your money is not yours. It's God's. And when you give it, you're giving his money. Paul says, so give cheerfully, give joyfully. Hey, hey, what, what, can you think of anything better than giving away someone else's money? Scott, open your wallet. I want to, I want to give it away. I want to give it away, right? Can you think of anything better than giving away someone else's money? That's fun, right? God says, give away my money. Give away my money. Have joy as you give it. Don't give it begrudgingly or manipulatively or pridefully, ostentatiously. Give it away because I gave it to you. Amen. 
Give cheerfully, number one. Give, number two, give sacrificially. Give sacrificially. The, very, the verse just prior to the one we just read in 1 Corinthians 9, you can turn there if you want, wonderful text to underline and keep in mind. Excuse me, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. But this I say to you, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So the second lesson there is give sacrificially. How much, you say? How much do I give, Pastor? Do I give 10%? And to that I say an emphatic no. We're not under the Mosaic Law. Many, many Christians have this idea that we're to, to, to tithe 10%. God said 10% in the Word. Well, yes, He did. He said in the Old Testament, under the law, they were to give 10% of their profit, of their resources, of their inventory, so to speak. They didn't often have money in the ancient Near East. They were to give 10% of all that they had. But that was in the law. And you come to the New Testament, and Paul never mentions tithe again. Jesus never mentions it as, as some sort of a command or some sort of like a, 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 an absolute, yeah, this is it, it's 10% and that's it. No. You find just the opposite. You find open-ended opportunities for giving. Give cheerfully, give sacrificially. We'll go on and mention a few other things. He talks about how you give it, not how much. It seems to me that if giving in the New Testament is meant to be sacrificial, then we should feel it. Write down, I should feel it. I should feel it. Because guess what? That's different for every single one of you. Some of you in here make uh, six figures. You should feel it when you give. Others of you in here barely make a living. Paul would have you say to yourself, yet still, I should feel it. I should feel it when I give to the work of the Lord. I'm to give sacrificially. Our giving should be noteworthy to us, recognizable to us. It's not the quantity of the gift that makes it sacrificial. Giving is unique. The sheer amount is not the crucial thing. Witherington writes, sacrifice looks different for different persons. They involve different percentages of giving according to one's circumstance. Whether you're rich or whether you're poor, there are differences in the way that sacrificial giving will look for you. And actually to the rich, I I just want to say that as you watch Jesus interact with the rich, as you watch him in the Gospels, do do a study. Those of you who are wealthy, do a study and, and just look at the studies every time Jesus interacts with a wealthy person. Virtually every time, he is telling them divest your wealth lavishly give it in some cases he says give all your possessions away in other cases uh, men like Zacchaeus come forward and say I am going to make it right with everybody that I've wronged and he gives away so much of his wealth he divests himself of all the bounty that God has given to him those of you who are rich consider that as you give to the work of the Lord. Note how Jesus interacted with the rich men. Those of you who are poor, sacrificial giving may not amount to much in terms of quantity for you, but that's not what matters. Jesus said in Luke 12, one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. So you stay focused 
on whether your giving is sacrificial based on what you have, not on what someone else has. Your sacrifice will be different, but God is watching your gift. And he'll credit to your account in proportion to the joy and the sacrifice you have in giving it. One man writes a story about uh, this very thing, um, an interaction that he had, uh, that his father had, as a matter of fact, with a poor woman in their church. He says this, Some time ago, my father was on a canvas team for his local Methodist church. He was the captain of the team that had as one of its members a, uh, a young up-and-coming lawyer who wore Brooks Brothers suits and drove a BMW. In an every-member canvas, it is the task of the teams to visit members in their homes and gather the pledges for the coming year. So the, the, this Methodist church, they send out a team, and they go house to house to house in the church, every family, and they ask them, could you please uh, write down what you think might be your annual gift for the coming year so that we can plan and, and budget accordingly as a church? Off they send, everyone. One, one person who was on the lawyer's list to visit was a retired woman living on a fixed income in a trailer, trailer park at the edge of town. When the lawyer found the lady, he noted, on the, he noted the condition of her tiny yard and the trailer and was growing reluctant to ask her for a pledge of money. But he went on inside the trailer where she had fixed him sweet tea and cookies They had a grand chat about their church, and as the chat wound down, the lawyer rose to leave without asking for the pledge. And the widow said, wait just a minute, son. I've got my pledge on the fridge. He muttered in return, the lawyer did. That's all right, ma'am. We understand you're just barely getting by. Before he could finish his sentence, she had gotten right up in his face grabbed him by the lapels and said, don't you take it away, son. Don't you take away from me the opportunity to contribute to the ministry of Jesus. Don't you do it, son. Then she handed him her pledge card and the man walked away. Doesn't matter how much you give. Quantity does not matter. Sacrificial giving is what matters. Whether you're poor, middle class, or rich, Give sacrificially to the work of the Lord. Another, give, write this down, mindfully. Give mindfully. And below that, under, below, uh, under give mindfully, never give in a way that burdens the basic necessities of your family. Always give in a way that inconveniences your luxuries. Never given away that burdens the basic necessities of your family. Always given away that inconveniences your luxuries. First, never giving away burdens. Uh, never given away that burdens the basic necessities of your family. This is derived from First Timothy five eight. Paul says, "If anyone does not provide for his own, especially for his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever." Let me say that again. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Paul says repeatedly in the New Testament, provide for your own. Do not be, do not, as best as, as, best as you can, as best as you can, do not be a burden upon others, especially, he says, when you give. 
Paul will say elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 8, we don't have time to turn there, but when you have opportunity, circle 2 Corinthians verse chapter 8 on your outline there. Because in that text, Paul talks specifically about the issue of people who give and give and give and then burden their own families or burden their own livelihood. Paul says it's not to be that way. It's not to be that way. Provide for the basic necessities of your family, food, clothing, and shelter. But don't burden your family as you give. Give mindfully. But here's what he does want you to to burden uh, as you give. He wants you to burden your, your own luxuries. Always give in a way that inconveniences your luxuries. Sacrificial giving necessarily means forsaking luxuries. And when it comes to luxuries, well, really, you need to ask yourself at the end of the day, and the easiest way to do it is to open up your bank statement. You might get it online, or you might get it in the mail. You might have a credit card statement. And just take a piece of paper and, and put a line down the middle. And on the one side, put necessities. On the other side, write luxuries. And go ahead and delineate your monthly expenditures. Necessities, food, clothing, shelter. Virtually everything else, Luxury. When it comes to spending your money, God's money, on a matter of luxury, I suggest asking yourself the following questions. Am I buying this luxury out of covetousness? Am I buying it for personal pleasure? Am I buying it to gain status in the eyes of others? Luxuries in and of themselves are not evil. But what can become a root of evil is when we love and covet those luxuries over and above the things of God. In Proverbs 23, 23 Solomon said, buy the truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, buy instruction, buy understanding. Buy the truth and do not sell it. Wisdom, instruction, and understanding. Had we more time, I I would like to uh, deal a little bit more with the issue of luxuries. But we're running out just a little bit. I want to add just a few more things, though, about, uh, about these last two matters here regarding giving mindfully. Not to be a burden to your own family, to cover your basic necessities. Some people might object and say, well, pastor, what about uh, the widow who gave away her whole livelihood, those two mites that she had in her hand? And what about the rich young ruler whom Jesus said, sell all that you have and give to the poor? Aren't those, pastor, aren't those instances in which Jesus said that it was okay to even burden your own livelihood? Of course, we need to take those into consideration. Of course, we need to make some sense of them because the scriptures cannot contradict themselves. Starting with the last one, as to the rich young ruler, if we're being technically accurate, Jesus didn't ask for his paycheck, now did he? He asked for the man's possessions. He didn't ask the man for his basic necessities. You don't see Jesus asking the man to give up his clothes and his food. Instead, he tells the man, sell all that you have and give to the poor. He was focused on the man's wealth, wealthy possessions. He was asking him to depart from a life of luxury and to sell and give away all those possessions to the poor. As to the widow, the Gospels say that she had two mites in, uh, in Luke Chapter 21, that she threw into the temple treasury, and Jesus was watching this take place. Those two mites were the equivalent of one sixty-fourth of a daily wage of a laborer. Now, a laborer in that day, he did not make minimum wage, and minimum wage is not that much, as we well know. 
But let's assume for a minute that he did make minimum wage. Let's say he earned approximately $10 an hour. If that were the case, then in modern terms, the widow's life savings that she threw into the temple treasury would have amounted to $1.25. $1.25. For a full day's work, I should say. The bottom line is this. The widow was already in need. She wasn't making herself a burden. She had nothing anyway. And yet out of her poverty, Jesus says she put in all of her livelihood, all that she had. The scriptures are not contradicting what Paul is saying elsewhere. Jesus is not contradicting Paul and neither is Paul contradicting Jesus. The rich young ruler and the widow's mites are two separate particular stories that communicate good lessons but are not binding upon all Christians for all time over all centuries. God is not asking you right now necessarily unless you've heard from him to sell all your possessions and give to the poor. Neither is he telling you like, uh, like the widow was inspired to do to give every single thing in your wallet to the work of the Lord. He might ask you to do that, by the way. But it's not a command of Scripture. The commands of Scripture and the outlines of Scripture are the things that we've walked through a bit today, though not comprehensively. When profit comes our way, we're to give it back to him. We're to give cheerfully, give sacrificially, give mindfully. Not in a way that burdens our family, but always in a way that inconveniences our luxuries. Other questions to consider, I've listed there for you. Uh, you can take those home and, and peruse them at your leisure. I didn't get to borrowing and I didn't get to lending. But those of you who interact with either of those things, and I'm sure you do, um, since most of us in uh, the first century uh, 21st century America are, uh, have borrowed to the, to the hilt. Uh, keep in mind some of these things as you consider your continued use of money and wanting to resurrect that view of money. But as we close, I want to turn to Acts, and I want you to turn there too. Look at Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And I want to leave us with this. I want this to be the final taste in our mouth as we think about a resurrected view of money. I want us to see a community that lived out many of the principles we've outlined here today. That community was the first century church. And this is how Luke described that church in Acts 4, verses 32 and following. Notice their generosity. Luke writes this. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart, And one soul. And neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and they laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, having land, he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Did you see there what it said in verse 32 again? Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. 
But they had all things in common. This life is so short. Just think about it. It's a, it's a vapor. It's gone. It's a vapor and it's gone. You might live 70, 80, 90 years. But really in comparison to eternity, this is nothing. And so when you think about your wealth, when you think about your money, you think about your possessions, you need to ask yourself, am I going to live in such a way that for these trite 70, 80, 90 years of my life, I'm going to hoard it all to myself? Just save as much as I can for luxury, for leisure later? Or I'm going to give a great inheritance to my kids? Okay, that, you know what? That's nice. It's not bad to leave something for your children. In fact, Paul mentions that parents should store up for their children. But when it really comes down to it, the lesson that I want to leave for my children, for Bennett, for Mallory, for Amelia, is not that dad left a lot in the bank account for you. I want to leave them the impression that everything we have is completely the Lord's. Whether I'm passing them down $10 or $10,000 or $100,000, I don't want them to be happy about what they get in an inheritance. I want them to have in mind, now that they've received any kind of inheritance I might give them, I want their first thought to be, now how can I use this for the work of the Lord? Amen? If I've done that for my children, then I've succeeded in teaching them about money. How do you view money? How do you spend it? How do you save it? How do you give it? You do this every day. Think about now how you can resurrect your view of money going forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we want to emulate and, and mimic that pattern of the first century church in Acts. What a summary statement, God, of all we've looked at in your word. That they did not consider themselves to own any of it. And yet there were some who were quite wealthy in that group, who owned lands, businesses, had much a real estate, property. And yet, Lord, as a community, they just divested and divested and divested themselves, knowing full well it wasn't theirs to begin with. It's yours. And that, that, that their job was merely to cover their family's basic necessities and then give as much of the rest of it away as they could. Giving it to, giving materially to those who have benefited them spiritually, giving to those in need who are hurting, who can't cover their basic necessities, God. We look at our community, Lord. We have some rich, some poor, quite a few in the middle. Some of us can't cover our basic needs, God, in this community. Oh, Lord, would those of us who can rise up, be cheerful, joyful to give? that they might have food and shelter and clothing. For those of us, Lord, who have a lot or who have more than we need, or for those of us, God, who would have a, a lot more, but, Lord, we just were beholden to luxury. God, would you convict our hearts? Would you help us to ask ourselves, do we need this luxury over and above giving it to the work of the Lord?
Father, help us to be mindful, mindful givers, sacrificial givers, cheerful givers. Help us to be like that first century church that divested themselves of wealth and gave to those who had need. There might be equality, that there might be a hope among all, that all the basic necessities might be covered, God, and that above and beyond we might give to the work of the Lord that many might hear of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for which we do all these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.